turning our Bibles then to 1 Peter and to the last paragraph that we're considering this evening uh, from verse 22 uh, to 25 uh, of this chapter and thinking of our seventh description of a Christian in this opening chapter, that of being born again. Now, in 2018, the best-known evangelist in the English-speaking world, and indeed beyond the English-speaking world, died at the age of 99. The Daily Mail called him a Christian superstar, and one journalist called him America's pastor. He appeared in America's Gallup annual poll of most admired American people more times than anyone else. His name, of course, was Billy Graham. He held numerous large gospel crusades across the world. And some of you will remember, maybe heard, his fiery preaching. Statisticians have estimated that he preached in 185 countries out of what we're all familiar with now, the 195 countries. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Uh, so he reached, the, the, they reckon, 215 million people in person in his preaching and over 2 billion worldwide through the means of television. And his preaching continues to reach people through his online presence. Criticism, of course, was made of his political involvement with Martin Luther King and Richard Nixon. Some of his political opinions have been criticized. Some of his religious practices, we would believe, were wrong. But some were exemplary. It was a seminal moment when he took down ropes separating blacks and whites in Tennessee. But the abiding image that most of us have of Billy Graham is of him standing uh, with his Bible open in one hand and declaring repeatedly, the Bible says. This posture led to him being called God's machine gun. And so you're naturally asking, what did he maintain, the Bible said? The dominant message of his preaching was, you must be born again. He wrote a book on that subject. He was absolutely right on that point. We must be born again. We come to this final and seventh description of a Christian in this opening chapter. We find it in verse 23, the apostle writing to these Christians in the first century scattered around modern day, what is modern day Turkey. And he says of them, you have been born again. What a statement. What a description of what a Christian is. Now, I'll give you a little insight into Tim and my mind as expository preachers. I've wrestled with the question throughout these sermons on chapter 1, if the seven descriptions that I have given is the natural thrust and meaning of this chapter, or is this an imposition by myself on this first chapter? 
I haven't sought to bring out the flow of the paragraphs for you to identify the link between each of the verses in our sermons, but rather I've identified the seven descriptions given of a Christian in this first chapter. My job is not to give a running commentary on the Bible. My job is to bring a message to the congregation, to do the analysis and the groundwork in my study and then bring to you a message of comfort and challenge for your life. And so while these might not be the thrust and emphasis of this first chapter, nonetheless, they are here. And we've pulled them out and highlighted them, and they have great use and challenge for us, these seven descriptions of a Christian. We will see that there's other places in in the writings of Peter in our studies where there is clear structure, where there is repetition of words and ideas, and it's easy for us to see the emphasis in those other parts. But maybe not so much here. But nonetheless, to aid your memory, to examine your life, to equip you for witnessing in your canteen and in your street, We've emphasized these seven descriptions of a Christian. Great sermons by Al Martin, Sinclair Ferguson, Derek Thomas are available for you on chapter 1 of 1 Peter if you want an alternative structure. But we've emphasized what a Christian is. Chosen by God. Heirs of heaven. Joyful even in trial, privileged at living at this time in redemptive history, children of God, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and born again by his Spirit. As we reflect on these, we ask ourselves, don't we, am I a Christian? There's many descriptions and opinions of what a Christian is in this world. And we find it more and more to use the word Christian without some qualification. For some it means living by the Sermon on the Mount. For others it means keeping the Ten Commandments. For some it means showing love to our neighbor. But here's the definition biblical definition of what a Christian is and we've put it on the PowerPoint to to not only convey it audibly but visibly to ourselves so that we will live with this. We will remember this. This will be embossed on our hearts. Chosen, heirs, joyful, privileged children, redeemed, born again. And we ask ourselves then, am I a Christian? In this sense, by this biblical definition, these descriptions, as we've pointed out and emphasized, primarily show us what a Christian is from the perspective of God and what he has done. He has redeemed us by the blood of his Son. He has chosen us before the world began He sends his spirit down from heaven to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. This is emphasizing 
what a Christian is from the divine perspective. And this makes us worship him. We praise him for this wide and deep and and, and multi-layered salvation that he brings to us. Boys and girls, if you haven't yet seen the amazing pictures that are coming back from the Hubble telescope, I encourage you to, to, to check them out online. What incredible pictures of parts of outer space and galaxies that no one has ever seen before. And as you look at those pictures, you are just amazed at the incredible and extensive work of God. What a God he is, far bigger than our little planet. What he has done, what he is managing and controlling is incredible. We admire him more. The bounds of our understanding of the universe are stretched and expanded by these fresh pictures from the ends of the universe. This description of what a Christian is, it expands our mind, it deepens our understanding, and it causes us to worship God more for all that he has done for us. He has chosen us. He has redeemed us. We are his children. We are born again by his spirit. This description of a Christian, thirdly, we ask, are we a Christian? We worship this incredibly gracious, loving God. But thirdly, it makes us pray. This is emphasizing how we become a Christian. This work from heaven. This God reaching down in his saving grace. We cannot do this for people. We cannot make someone a Christian. God does this. This description of a Christian in this first chapter is is challenging us and encouraging us to look to God, to pray to God, to trust God. God who redeems. The God who gives new life. The post office is, is receiving bad press at this time, isn't it? <clears throat> For meddling in the local postmaster's accounts. That after all, they did have the power to, to infiltrate the systems of the, the local post offices and, and change things without the, the postmaster's knowledge. They had that power to access things and they have misused it, it would seem. But here is God. This is how he uses his power. Reaching into the life of an unbeliever, ruined by sin, deserving his judgment, and he redeems them. He chooses them. He adopts them. He gives them a new nature, a new heart. We pray for our children, for our families, for our town, that this God would make more and more people because only he can make people Christians. We come to our last description then of the the new birth and we want to think this evening uh, of the, the meaning of the new birth, the means of the new birth, the marks of the new birth and the manner uh, of the new birth. Thinking first of all of the meaning of the new birth. 
Being born again refers to the supernatural work of God and the life of a person by which he implants new spiritual and eternal life in him or her. It's a central teaching of the Bible, isn't it? And one evidence of its centrality is that it occurs both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This is a a theme that runs throughout the whole of the Bible. We were singing in Psalm 87 about people who were foreigners being born in Israel. What does this mean? It means their spiritual birth. Psalm 51, the writer prays to God that God would create within him a new heart. In Jeremiah, we read about God giving the new heart, writing his law upon the heart, this inward delight in God's law, total transformation in the outlook, the bent, the motivations, the desires, the values of people. Ezekiel speaks about this in the same way. You remember Jesus, boys and girls, speaking to Nicodemus at night, Outside the city of Jerusalem, why did he come to Jesus at night? You could ask your parents about this later on, and there's many answers and suggestions to that question. But Jesus said to that religious man, you must be born again. John mentions this in his his letters, 1 John especially. And James, in chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, born again, made new. And so here in Peter's writing, you have been born again. The denial of the necessity of the new birth, and it is denied by liberal theologians and ministers within our province. The denial of the necessity or reality of the new birth by many is a denial of one of the central teachings of the Bible. Those Peter was writing to had been changed. And as we read through his letter and study through his letter, and and we saw it this morning, he keeps talking about the life they used to live, the the futile life that they had. You remember he said in verse number 18, ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That was their past life. It was vain, it was empty, but now they've got a new life. They've been born again. They've, They've started afresh. There's a new beginning in them. And throughout his writings, he, he goes back to what they used to be. But now they're different. Something incredible has happened. An amazing transformation has occurred. And he identifies it here as, you have been born again. Derek Draper, and we were speaking about him this morning He was a high-level advisor then in the Labour government, as as you well know. But but on one occasion, he unsuspectingly revealed information to an undercover journalist, and he had to to step down from his position. And he was depressed after that for a while. He went away to America, and he knew that he had to reinvent himself. And he did reinvent himself, and he became a psychotherapist. But that is very different. From what's been referred to here. 
Being born again is more than a reinvention of herself. It is the supernatural work of God coming down upon a life and making it new. (coughs) And this seventh description complements the previous one, doesn't it? Redemption focuses on setting us free from the guilt of our sin. Jesus' precious blood pays the ransom price that we deserve and sets us free from the guilt and liability to judgment. But being born again emphasizes us being set free, not from the guilt of our sin so much, but from the power of our sin. We're given a new heart, new inclinations, new desires. That's what you're here in church this evening and not out in the pub. Something's been changed in your life. New desires, new interests, new values, new priorities in your experience. Christianity works from the inside out. We are born again. It's not all about keeping rules and commandments and legislation. And theologians have suggested the the transformation which the the new birth effects by, by, by this contrast between the command and the promise. Before being born again, it's all about commands. After we're born again, it's about promises. Take the command, you shall not steal. What a burden that is to us. What a chore that is to us. How difficult that is to us. It's a command, you shall not steal. But after the new birth, it becomes a promise with a new heart, with a new power, with new values, you shall not steal. Secondly, the means of the new birth in verse 23, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Dear, we have a wonderful contrast in this statement between our natural birth and our spiritual birth. We're born again, not of perishable seed, that's our natural birth, but of imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. We inherit a body that decays and a soul that sins from our father and from our mother. That's the perishable seed. But by contrast here, we are born again through the imperishable word of God. It never decays. Its promises are true. Its teachings are pure. This contrast between the perishable and the imperishable is carried on in the quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 that we have in the next verse. A contrast between the flesh and the word of God. Between mortal man and life and the spiritual and abiding Word of God. Born again through the Word of God. Peter uses the term here, born again, in in a broader sense than than sometimes it's used. We understand the, the process of being born again as of the Holy Spirit implanting new life within our hearts. And that new life is expressed in us repenting of our sins and believing the gospel. 
The new life comes first. And that's expressed in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But here it seems Peter uses the word born again in a broad sense, in an all-encompassing sense, both of that initial implantation of the new life within the soul and its expression in us believing the gospel, the promises of the word of God. So in that wider sense and understanding, he says, we are born again through the imperishable word of God. That new life precedes our faith, but issues in our faith in Jesus Christ and in the promises of the gospel. A biblical example of this is Lydia, successful businesswoman in the city of Philippi. She's along at the, the prayer meeting down by the river. And we read in Acts 16 that the Lord opened her heart. There's the regeneration. Opened her heart to believe the word that was preached. There's been born again by the imperishable word of God. This is why prayer is so crucial for any church. We cannot create anxious thoughts in anyone. We can teach the Bible. We can preach the Bible. We can thump the Bible. We can give out the Bible. But we need the Spirit of God to implant new life in any soul that will issue in saving faith in the imperishable Word of God. It's our prayer that the calendars that we've given out to the the local shops here beside our church that will hang on their walls for this year with God's Word contained on them and in homes where it's been distributed that at some moment in 2024, the Holy Spirit will come on an unbeliever and create new life within that soul and they'll look at that text and that new life will issue in saving faith in the promise on our church calendar. Born again through the imperishable word of God. It's important for us to to present the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to bring unbelievers before the Word of God so that when the new life is implanted, they'll have something to believe, something to trust in, something to lay hold of. Thirdly, the marks of the new birth. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. The chief evidence cited here of the new birth in verse 22 is love for other believers. Right, Reuben, this is your part here. Okay, just as crying, feeding, growing are evidences of natural birth, so love for God's people is evidence of new birth. Earnestly loving one another since you have been born again. Jesus says, John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Brotherly love is visible, isn't it? 
The regeneration, the new life, the implantation of eternal life in the soul, it's invisible. Our faith, our repentance is also often private. It's often secret. It's often just between our soul and God. But the evidence of that new life in brotherly love is visible, it's practical, it's tangible. In the home baking, in the phone calls, in the visits, in the encouragements that we can give. And this action, this mark of the new birth, is an indication of the new birth, not only because of its visibility, but also because of its imitation. Our Heavenly Father is a being of love. And all those who are born again by His Spirit should imitate their Father in heaven. Just as we imitate our earthly parents, and my brother will be going on Friday, uh, and you'll be able to say, ah, there, there he is, you know, just, just like our minister, just, just the very same. But we have the same Father, and we imitate the, and, and mimic and, and, and demonstrate uh, the, the families to which we belong. So, being born again from heaven, by the Spirit of God, we imitate. We have, have this life from God and we imitate God and, and how he acts and, and what he does. He's a, a being of incredible love. And as his children, we're to express that love to others. Do you see the word earnestly in this verse? Isn't it challenging? This is the brand of love, wholehearted, sacrificial the Apostle Paul, John, sorry, puts it like this in his letter. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. See the connection that he makes there. We love because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The marks of the new birth. And then, fourthly, the manner of the new birth. So as we consider this subject of the new birth, we're asking ourselves, no doubt, are we born again? Has this essential spiritual experience happened to us? Remember, without it, we will not enter heaven. It's a crucial question, an important question. So we want to know more about it. We want to have the new birth filled out for us, to see this expression expanded, that we may understand it in a fuller way. And so in this fourth point, we want to consider the experience of the new birth from church history. To hear the account of some who believe that they were born again. Justin Martyr, in the third century AD, he was a prominent church apologist. Boys and girls, that doesn't mean that he apologized for the gospel, but rather the term is used in the sense that he defended the gospel. And he describes his experience and the experience of other believers in his time when he writes, We who formerly delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and share with everyone 
who is in need. What happened to them? What changed them? What influenced them? They were born again. Patrick, fourth century, describes his experience, and this is well known. He says, I was like a stone, lying in deep mud, but he that is mighty lifted me up and placed me on top of a wall. He was dead, he says, not physically, not emotionally, but spiritually, that the new birth, he was made alive. Martin Luther describes his experience, he writes, it seemed that the gates of paradise had been flung open to me, and I had entered. There, and then, the whole of Scripture took on another look to me. Incredible thing about Martin Luther at that time in his life, he was teaching the Bible in a theological college. But in that moment of new birth, the whole of the Bible opened up with a new meaning, a deeper understanding, a book of grace instead of a book of law. John Bunyan describes his experience in the 17th century, the Bedford tinker. He writes it, and I really like this one, boys and girls. He says, now was my heart filled full of comfort and hope. I remember I did not know how to contain myself. And then this interesting bit, he says, I thought I could have spoken of God's love and mercy to me, even to the crows that sat on the ploughed land in front of me if they were able to understand me. So full of peace and comfort and hope. And what had happened to this man? He was born again. Jonathan Edwards describes his experience. He writes, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God to be for the future in no respect my own. Who would ever promise that? but someone who was born again. And then lastly, D.L. Moody, the 19th century American evangelist, he describes his experience, and, and this is a, a lovely one. He says, the old sun shone a good deal brighter than it had ever done before. I thought that it was just smiling on me, and as I walked out on Boston Common and heard the birds singing in the trees, I thought they were all singing a song to me. And I had not a bitter feeling against any man. And I was ready to take all men to my heart. What had happened to him? He was born again turning away from filth to purity, delighting and understanding the word of God, wanting to live only for God, a heart of love to all, spiritual life where there was death. This is what it means to be born again. And so as we consider the new birth tonight, let us resolve to pray more that we will witness 
people born again. That in this congregation in 2024, we will see and welcome people born by the Spirit of God. We're looking forward to the birth of two children this year in our congregation. We are praying for their safe arrival. But let us also desire and pray for the rebirth of souls in this coming year.